This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Welcome to Democracy Matters, the podcast of the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University. I'm Dr. Kara ong Associate Director. This is Abe Goldberg, Director of the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement and faculty member in the Department of Political Science here at James Madison University. And I'm Jake Conley. I'm a senior journalism student here at JMU. I'm the editor-in-chief of The Breeze, and I'm the 2021 recipient of the James Acosta Scholarship for Media Excellence. In this episode, we're going to talk with Jim Acosta, a CNN anchor for weekend programming and the network's chief domestic correspondent based in Washington, D.C. Previously, Acosta served as CNN's chief White House correspondent, where he covered the Trump administration and the Obama administration from the White House and around the world. He regularly covers presidential press conferences, visits by heads of state, and issues impacting the executive branch of the federal government. Acosta also reported from the 2016 campaign trail following Republican presidential candidate Donald Trump. Acosta is also the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Enemy of the People. Acosta graduated cum laude from JMU with a bachelor's degree in mass communications and a minor in political science. Enjoy the episode. Jim, you continue to draw attention to the fact that there is an ongoing insurrection in this country. Can you share your initial reactions as you watched the events on January 6th and the insurrection unfold? And I'm curious in your view, what are the implications of the January 6th, 2021 violent attacks and ongoing insurrection for a democracy in America? Well, I'm glad I'm glad you posed the question, you know, in asking about the insurrection, because I mean it was an insurrection. And to say otherwise, I think is just not dealing with the facts of the situation. Uh, But I was at the White House that day. I was covering Donald Trump, obviously. He was a couple of weeks from leaving office and, you know, he was making it very clear he was he was not going to go uh, quietly. And, you know, he gave this speech uh, down on the ellipse uh, right right outside the White House grounds. And uh, it was, you know, basically the same kind of speech he would typically give at one of his rallies uh, and so on. But, you know, he had this uh, crowd of people that were very fired up. Uh, You know, he was continuing to question the election results. Uh, He was, you know, talking about how, you know, these lawmakers are letting us down. We need to, you know, show them, um, you know, what we're all about and, and so on. Um, and, you know, I think that one of the big differences between, you know, the, the event on the mall on January the 6th and his Trump rallies that I've covered so many times, you know, I, I tell people, uh, quite a bit that, you know, during the Trump rallies, you know, he would fire people up. He would whip people into a frenzy. Uh, they would direct all sorts of hostility at us and the press and so on. He would talk about all of his various targets, uh, at a rally, but the people who attend those rallies would typically get in their cars and go home. Um, on January 6th, the big difference was they were all assembled on the mall and he told them to march down to the Capitol. And so, of course, they were fired up. They were whipped into a frenzy. And then, you know, their commander in chief uh, essentially uh, sent uh, his forces down to the Capitol. And we saw um, what what happened, what transpired after that. I was on the air as all of this was unfolding. Uh, I described it as a, uh, you know, as the bon- a bonfire of the insanities, uh, because uh, for Donald Trump, you know, th- this was, I think, a- the culmination of four or five years of him lying repeatedly to the American people of uh, using hostile and sometimes violent rhetoric uh, for political gain. And to me, this was just kind of a... Um, you know, a, a moment where all of this came together uh, in this, you know, giant bonfire of just uh, unbelievable, uh, unpatriotic, terrorist-like activity up, up at the Capitol. It was like a rebellion that he stoked. And so when historians look back on all of this, when journalists look back on, and I think when Americans look back on all of this years from now, they're going to see essentially the president of the United States Direct an, att- direct an attack on the United States. And as mind-bending and inception-like as that is, uh, the sad reality is we're all just going to have to come to grips with that fact, uh, you know, if not now, years from now. 
Jim, I want to ask about the role of the media in this kind of stuff. Um, in your view, what is the role of the media to investigate and then report on these really violent, um, oftentimes fascist or white supremacist movements that we saw organizing long before the attacks occurred and whose resurgence has now enabled a uh, sitting U.S. president to kind of lead this insurrection and now has enabled a certain wing of the uh, conservatives, conservative party in this country, the uh, Republican senators to kind of stoke these fires. What is the role of the media in reporting on all that? Well, the role in the me of the media in all of this is essentially what it has been, you know, um, since, you know, Trump came down the golden escalator in June of 2015. You know, we have to cover these things. We have to cover the news. And, you know, I, I do think that uh, we have to cover those things uh, in an unflinching way. You know, when uh, Charlottesville happened, uh, I was at Trump Tower with uh, Trump that day, uh, the day he said very fine people on both sides. I was the one who asked the question that led to him saying that. And I don't take any pride in that. It's just that, you know, he was he was essentially gaslighting uh, during that press conference about, you know, what was going on there. Uh, and, you know, I said, hang on, uh, Mr. President, the Nazis started this. They're the ones who started this violence. And that, that was when he chimed in and said, well, you have very fine people on both sides. Now, later on in that event, he kind of cleaned up after the fact and said, well, I condemn white supremacists and so on. Uh, but he never really um, in a clean and convincing way ever really denounced white supremacists throughout his presidency. He famously uh, told the Proud Boys to stand back and stand by during that one presidential debate with Joe Biden. And so what I think as journalists we have to do is we just have to call them like we see them. Uh, if the president of the United States is playing footsie with white supremacists, if he is, uh, you know, giving uh, the green light or at least the yellow light uh, to fringe groups, uh, neo-Nazi groups, uh, hard right uh, groups that are violent, that has to be called out. That has to be reported and it has to be reported in a way that is very clear to the American people. We can't both sides uh, these sorts of things. You know, when I was uh, with Trump at Trump Tower talking about Charlottesville, I didn't say, well, on the one hand, uh, aren't, uh, you know, what is your view on neo-Nazis? Could they be good? Could they be bad? No, I mean, it's that's just a ridiculous thing. Um, you, you know, you can't both sides those types of issues. Here in the United States, uh, I think we have a pretty, um, uh, you know, a firmly held view that white supremacists and neo-Nazis have no place in our society. Their views are uh, so extreme that they don't belong in any kind of uh, conversation that should be had in this country. Um, I, you know, th their free speech rights only go so far. I suppose, yes, they, they have the right to, you know, assemble and have events and that sort of thing. But their views are not to be taken seriously. They're, um, they're, they're contrary to American ideals and principles. All of those things are a part of the conversations. All of those things should be part of the coverage. And when the president of the United States plays footsie with those types of views and groups and so on, that has to be stated very plainly and very clearly so the American people can understand the president is playing footsie with uh, very dangerous people. Thank you so much. We are talking with you even as additional news is breaking. Um, but last week, House Homeland Security Chairman Bernie Thompson of Mississippi and the panel's ranking Republican and Representative John Katko of New York announced they reached an agreement for an independent panel to investigate January, the January 6th violent attacks. Um, and the discussions were that, you know, such a commission might be, the investigation might be modeled after the 9-11 commission. I wonder if you can share a little bit about what you think elected and other government officials should be doing um, with regards to investigating and also holding perpetrators of the violent attacks and ongoing insurrection accountable? Well, one of the reasons why a January 6th commission is so important is because we need to have the facts uh, and we need to uh, have a commission arrive at the facts in a bipartisan way. That's that's what's so important about this. Um, after 9-11, uh, after the assassination of uh, President Kennedy, um, we had commissions uh, that went about the business of determining what happened. Now, of course, uh, people call into question what the Warren Commission did in the aftermath of the Kennedy assassination. But, you know, given the more recent example of the 9-11 Commission, you know, people uh, not just now, but decades from now 
will have a clear view of what happened on September 11th, how those attacks unfolded, what happened to this country, because a commission was brought together of Republicans and Democrats to try to arrive at something very close to uh, the truth that people can count on for the historical record. If we don't have that uh, in the aftermath of the January 6th insurrection, you are going to have one political party in this country essentially deny what took place on January 6th. Now, there's obviously some Republicans inside the GOP who very you know, plainly and very clearly say, yes, this was a mob of Trump supporters who went up to the Capitol and tore the place apart and was saying things like hang Mike Pence and so on. But remember, right after January 6th, you had Trump, people inside the White House, people who were aligned with Trump, uh, who were saying it was Antifa and so on. You can't have uh, in the historical record, you know, years from now, decades from now, generations from now, you can't have Americans looking back and saying, well, uh, you know, some people say it was Antifa while other people say it was a Trump mob. We can't have some of that. That is why we have to have something like a 9-11 commission, put the facts together, call witnesses, try to get Trump to testify. He's not going to testify. Maybe get Kevin McCarthy to testify about what Donald Trump said to him and so on. So we can arrive at something that is very close to the truth. It's not just for our benefit um, as we stand now here as Americans, it's for the benefit of future generations of Americans who can you know, have a clear understanding as to what happened. One of the problems and one of the main complications in all of this is that you have forces inside one of the two political parties in this country that doesn't see a good political interest um, or benefit from arriving at that truth. Uh, they're worried about what the implications and the fallout might be in the upcoming midterm elections, presidential election in 2024, and so on. That is going to make things very complicated, and it may force the hand of Democrats to say, you know what, if we don't have a 9-11 style commission, we may have to form a committee that investigates these sorts of things. That's been done in the past, too. Watergate, Iran-Contra, and so on. Hearings have been held. Hearings have been called. People have been brought in. And you can arrive at something close to the truth in that aspect as well. We, it would be nice if we could have a bipartisan 9-11 style commission, but it just may not work out because of the political forces that exist today. Jim, I want to push on that a little bit about the um, uh, commission that's being proposed with all the language um, and public officials comparing it a lot to the 9-11 Commission, um, I'm thinking a lot of people might draw similarities not only in the scale of the investigation, but also in the language choices. In your view, what is the government's role and then what is the media's role in deciding how labels such as terrorism and other similar words should be applied to events individual and individuals? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question because it gets into uh, the breakdown and the tribalism that exists in American politics right now. You use the word like terrorism. All of a sudden you have people on the right, even the center right, who who brace at that and, and bristle at that sort of thing. Um, but if you, you know, if you Google terrorism and you get the textbook, you know, dictionary uh, explanation of a definition of what terrorism is, it is, you know, the use of violence, the use of intimidation to achieve a political goal. Now, I mean, that is what happened on January 6th. People violently uh, stormed the Capitol. Uh, there were many people inside of that um mob who were seeking to overturn the election results. Uh, they were egged on by members of Congress uh, who were trying to overturn the election results. They were swearing their allegiance to and following the orders uh, and urgings of a president who wanted to overturn the election results. And so, you know, we get into a, a position where it's like if it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, swims like a duck, it's got to be a duck. But there are still some people who say, no, it's a raccoon, it's a squirrel, it's, you know, it's something else. And I, I hate to tell people this, but, you you know, you've got to come back to the real world. And so, you know, that is why I, you know, I said at the very onset of our discussion, it's, it's the job of journalists, the job of people who care about history, care about politics and what's going on in this country to state very plainly and very clearly. I've done that on my show. I did that at the White House. It drives people nuts sometimes. But, you know, that is what you have to do if you're a journalist or a historian, you care about history and so on. You can't put things in manby-pamby, wishy-washy terms 
because most smart people at home recognize that you're just trying to uh, placate uh, one particular side that is largely responsible for what happened. And so, you know, it, this gets back to what I tell a lot of college students, a lot of groups I talk to about what, you know, being a journalist, you know, we're not there to be their friends. Uh, you know, if you want to be liked, go into a different line of work, uh, maybe be a veterinarian and take care of little kittens and puppies and stuff like that. That's not what you do as a journalist. As a journalist, you are there to piss off powerful people and uh, it's annoying and you're going to get uh, nasty emails and texts and people are going to say unkind things about you on social media. My goodness, if you want to go through my social media, be my guest. Um, but you know, you're not there to be liked. You're there to help, you know, the current people who are watching and listening and reading uh, and people decades from now, years from now, understand what is going on in American society, what's happening in the world. You've, you've given us a good segue because if, if, if your job is not to be liked, one might anticipate that those that you're reporting on are then going to go on the attack. And so we saw during the Trump presidency, there were uh, we saw an unprecedented number of public attacks on the press, with much of it coming directly from the administration itself. And it's really seemed to have taken a toll on Americans' trust with the media. In fact, just this past September, Gallup found that only 9% of Americans trust the mass media, with another 31% trusting it a fair amount. It's often said that the media is nothing. If, if no one trusts it. So what, what can and should the media be doing to restore public trust? Well, there are critics of the press uh, these days uh, who like to wave those poll numbers in our face and, you know, uh, look at this. This is exhibit A. It's like an indictment. This is exhibit A of, of why you are such scoundrels and terrible people. Um, and, uh, you know, that really hurts my feelings. I, I have a tough time recovering from those sorts of things. Um, I'm kidding, of course. Um, no, I mean, obviously, when the president of the United States is referring to the press as fake news and the enemy of the people, and he puts memes on social media of him, you know, squashing CNN like a bug or, uh, you know, memes on social media of a guy being body slammed by, you know, another guy who looks like Trump or has Trump's face superimposed. Remember all those crazy memes? I mean, obviously, he, you know, weaponized hostility and hatred and outrage uh, that was being directed at the news media uh, during the course of his presidency. That is what he did. He did that to try to intimidate us, cow us, um, bully us into giving him better coverage. What, it, what are you supposed to do as a journalist at that point? Are you supposed to say, oh, my goodness, uh, you're right. Uh, I'm a bad person. I should be squashed like a bug. Or do you stand your ground and you just try to do the job of doing you know, hard news reporting, asking tough questions, trying to get to the bottom of things, talking to your sources and putting things out as accurately as humanly possible? I mean, there's just really no other choice as as journalists. That's that's what we have to do. Um, it is it is it an unusual time to have uh, one largely one political party or have a president of the United States attack the news media in this kind of intense, sustained way? Of course, it's also one of the hallmarks of an authoritarian um, dictatorship like government that you see in other parts of the world. Uh, one of the benefits I've had of being a White House correspondent, I did it for seven and a half years before moving into my current role, is I was able to travel all around the world. I've been to every continent. I've been to everywhere but Antarctica. I feel like Johnny Cash, I've, I've been everywhere. But um, one of the things that you learn is you travel to different countries where, okay, they have state-controlled media. Uh, okay, they have media that is strongly influenced by the people in power, uh, places like Russia, uh, places like Saudi Arabia, places like Cuba, places like Vietnam. Places like China, my goodness, I've been to China. You know, I've been in the White House uh, press filing center, uh, had my Twitter working, had my Facebook working, had my Google working, walk outside the hotel in Beijing, all of those things are shut off. And what I ask people from time to time is, you know, what kind of a country do you want to live in? What, what way of life would you rather enjoy? Do you want to live in a country where the government decides uh, what kind of media you consume, what kind of information you consume, or do you want to have the freedom to, to uh, have all of those things at your disposal? Um, 
I think I think more uh, important uh, to to drive that point home is what way of life, what quality of life would you rather have? The quality of life that we have here in the United States, Western Europe, uh, democracies around the world that enjoy the same freedoms that we have by far have a much better quality of life than places like Russia and China and Saudi Arabia and Cuba and Vietnam and so on. So what quality of life would you rather have? Obviously, I think because we have freedom of thought, freedom of knowledge, uh, freedom of expression, all of those things, our quality of life is much better in, in these kinds of societies. If you're willing to trade that to have uh, one party control over the government, one party control of the media, take a look at the way of life. Take a look at the quality of life that those people enjoy in those countries. It's nowhere near what we have here in the United States and uh, the Western um, uh, part of the world. So, you know, it's it's something I think people have to think critically about because it, it, it is something that I think drives home the choices that we have to make here as Americans because the next several years, you know, I think are going to be critically important in terms of what is happening in this country right now. I want to follow up on that and ask, in a country like the U.S. where we are guaranteed the freedom of the press and the freedom of expression, how do you think about the government's relationship to the press and what that should look like? Well, the government should be in the business of providing uh, accurate, truthful, fact-based information to the public. Um you know, over the course of my lifetime, I just turned 50, um, not not to, you know, um, if there's one thing I do feel badly about, it's that. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but, you know, over the last uh, five decades of my life, you know, what have we had? We've had Watergate, Vietnam, Iran-Contra, weapons of mass destruction that didn't exist, Donald Trump, you know, like, I mean, come on, guys. Uh, you know, there there have been times over the course of my lifetime when the government hasn't been honest and truthful. So what does that mean? That means a journalist, you, you know, you ask about the relationship between the government and the press, you know, the relationship that the press needs to have in light of all of those things that happened over the course of my lifetime is that we have to be pretty adversarial. We have to be pretty skeptical. We have to question what we're hearing from the government. Top officials from the federal government on down to your local mayor and county commission and so on. I mean, that's just that is just um, a no brainer, uh, given what's happened over the course of the last 50 years. Now, the other thing that's I think is critically important that has just happened in the last year or so is look what's happened with George Floyd. Look what's happened with all these police brutality cases. One of the hot issues in my line of work these days is this whole issue of police say this police say that. Go and look at the um, police statement on the death, the initial police statement that came out in the, in the aftermath of the death of George Floyd and contrast that with reality as we know it uh, right now and what was found to, to have happened in a court of law. Had there not been video cameras, had there not been phone cameras on and rolling uh, during that circumstance, what would have happened in the case of George Floyd? He would have been murdered and no justice would have been done. And so, yes, it, it drives everybody crazy. It makes them pull their hair out when they hear me and my loudmouth voice yelling questions and uh, uh, other reporters like yourselves uh, asking questions drives people bananas, of course. But it's a necessary, um, I think, uh, noise uh, of a functioning democracy. Jimmy, you've given us another great segue um, with regards to digital and social media. Um, you know, they've drastically changed the ways that news and information are produced and consumed. And, you know, there there have been many positives, such as highlighting, um, you know, being able to see information that, from the ground in, in the case of George Floyd. Um, you know, I'm thinking back to Ferguson as well. Um, you know, there was a point where your network, CNN, was saying that all, all, was, all was quiet on the ground in Ferguson. And then, you know, views from the street on social media, um, you know, showed that it was quite the opposite. And there was a significant amount of police brutality occurring against protesters in Ferguson. Um, you know, so, so there have been many positive changes in, you know, being able to show different stories um, uh, and, and to hear from traditionally unheard and other minoritized population, minoritized populations. But we've also seen some severe negative impacts in terms of amplifying and spreading misinformation, disinformation and propaganda. Um, 
you know, I think one of the things that we continue to grapple with here at JMU Civic is the concept of truth. Um, and in this media environment and information landscape, um, I wonder if you can talk about how you define truth and report facts and how has social media impacted how you investigate and cover American politics, elections, political actors and political institutions? Well, um, you know, I, I think truth is um Truth is truth. Uh, you know, I know it when I see it. Um, that That is a tough thing to say, and that's a tough thing for people to hear and absorb because they're going to say, oh, well, your truth is not my truth and so on. Um, two plus two is four. Uh, the sky is blue. Um, I, You know, Donald Trump uttered some 20,000 half-truths and lies during the course of his presidency. How do I know I was there for nearly all of them? Um you know, the truth is, is, yes, it is under assault. It is difficult to define because of the tribal nature of our politics these days. But um, that is why what we do is so vitally important, because uh, like you were saying about uh, the situation in Ferguson, as I was referring to just a few moments ago, uh, the situation with George Floyd, um, you know, the video doesn't lie. Um, the camera doesn't blink. Uh, you know, independent um, observers, journalists who are witnessing events as they unfold um, can also uh, help us arrive at truths, I think. Um, people who have areas of expertise uh, in fields like science um, and, and so on, can help, and medicine can help us arrive at things like truths. Um, you know, we have a, we have a pandemic that is hopefully getting under control right now. Um, we have vaccines that are, what we're told are 95%, 96% effective in killing the Corona or protecting us against the coronavirus. Um, wh why do we believe that these vaccines are 96% effective, 95% effective? Because people like Dr. Fauci, uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci tell us uh, that they're 95, 96% effective. They've gone through trials and so on. Now, there are people out there who don't trust that vaccines are effective and take us down that rabbit hole and so on. I don't want to spend too much time down that rabbit hole. But, you know, you have to ask yourself, you know, if you're uh, hurt, seriously hurt in a car crash, um, where do you want to be taking? Are we taking to a hospital? You want doctors there who know what they're talking about. How are those doctors qualified? Because they spent years in medical school. How, what, what did they learn in medical school? Well, they were trained by people who knew what they were talking about when it came to the field of medicine. How did they know that? Because it's d decades and uh, generations of, of uh, practice in the area of medicine. Over the course of time, uh, over the course of you know, research, uh, we, we arrive at things like truth and near certainty in areas of science. You know, if we can trust that, if we can trust those truths, we should be able to trust other truths and other walks of life. Uh, what happened on January 6th was not Antifa uh, storming the Capitol. It was not a bunch of tourists uh, who got a little out of control. It was a full-blown riot insurrection. Um, you know, I know it because I covered it that day, because my news organization covered it that day, because multiple news organizations covered it that day. That is the truth. So how do we arrive at things like the truth? I think we arrive at things like the truth when you have multiple witnesses with people uh, in areas of expertise, uh, tell us that two plus two is two or four, excuse me, and that tell us that the sky is blue and so on. Um, and that that is how we arrive at things like the truth. Now, you know, there are some people who are just going to uh, hold their breath and get red in the face and stomp their feet and say that certain things aren't a certain way. Um, but I still have faith in uh, our institutions uh, like a free press in this country, like scientists uh, who can arrive at conclusions about things like a coronavirus vaccine and so on. And so I think um, the truth is. And, and, and the importance of the truth is, um, I think, what we put into it. And that has to be a certain measure of trust and faith in your fellow human being uh, to be able to tell you what the truth is. Why, why do we go to college? Why do I sit, sit there in a, in a classroom in a university setting and listen to some professor go on and on for hours and hours about um, history and mathematics and science. And why do we do those things? Because we have some level 
of trust and faith that the, that the information that is being passed on to us is the truth. Um, and so, you know, that, that conversation, but we probably could have spent the whole hour talking about that, but, um, to some extent, I think it is, you know, this concept of the truth and what the truth is. And I, I think your relationship to that question, how you answer that question says a lot about yourself. And if you do think that there is such a thing as the truth, it's probably because you have some measure of faith and trust in your fellow human being. I think as long as we have some measure of faith, faith and trust in our fellow human being, we can believe in things like the truth. It's just a matter of trusting other human beings from other walks of life who may not share your political views. Yes, what they're telling you may actually be the truth. Um, as crazy and convoluted as I just tried to explain it there, um, I do think that it's, it's a difficult question these days. It's a complicated question, but I think a lot of it go, goes back to, do we have some measure of trust in uh, people who have knowledge and expertise and have that capability of passing on to us? Jim, I want to follow up on that with uh, kind of a question about the media's role in all this. In late April of this year, a CNN poll indicated that seven out of 10 Republicans still do not believe Joe Biden won enough votes to win the presidency. We've also seen uh, significant differences between the two major political parties on the likelihood of getting vaccinated for COVID-19, which, um, according to a Texas A&M study, stems from a distrust of scientists and an unfounded concern about how new the vaccine is. So I guess my question is, how can the media be a reliable source of information on public issues when basic facts are being called into question and mistrust is especially high in one of our major two political parties? Well, I think one of the reasons why um, we have an election that is still in question for some people is because it goes a little bit back to what I was just saying a few moments ago, is that um, trust has been eroded so much um, in, in certain segments of our society that we can't agree on one common set of facts or one uh, common set of truths. I mean, obviously, Joe Biden won the election. Uh, he won by 7 million votes in the popular vote. He won by the same Electoral College margin that Donald Trump won by in 2016. Uh, Donald Trump, I remember this because I covered it, used to go around and talk about how decisive a victory that was, even though he lost the popular vote. And, you know, I think some of this is dependent upon, you know, um, the viewpoint of people who are getting their information and their news from a select number of very conservative, hard right media outlets. Um, just the other day on CNN, I referred to Fox News as a bullshit factory. Uh, if you'll forgive the language in this academic setting, um, I think it's a perfect description of Fox News. They air segments all day long that are designed to gin up outrage in their viewership, uh, whether it's about cancel culture or other uh, kinds of nonsense. Um, they, they have segments about Snow White being canceled. They have segments about Dr. Seuss being canceled and Mr. Potato Head, as if these are serious pressing matters in American society. They're not. It's bullshit that is designed and geared towards ginning up outrage and, and keeping their viewership uh, locked in and watching that channel all day long. What has happened on the far right uh, is is distressing because uh, they've given birth uh, over at Fox to a series of uh, mini-me's. Uh, now there's a Newsmax and OAN and all these far right talk show hosts and so on. What do they do all day long? They spew out bullshit segment after segment filled with BS and nonsense that is primarily designed to gin up outrage in the people who are watching or listening or, or what have you. Um, it's a sad state of affairs. Um, but one of the problems I think that that goes on with that sort of thing, uh, that sort of dynamic happening on the hard right is that you have people who are saying, you know what, why would I want to watch CNN? Why would I want to watch NBC? Why would I want to read the New York Times or my local newspaper? They're not telling me that the ballots are in dispute in, uh, in Arizona. I want to know more about the bamboo ballots in Arizona. Okay, well, I'll turn on OAN. I'll turn on Newsmax. Now those people have, you know, being fed into their brains, um, information that uh, is tailored to their political uh, point of view. 
Um, there is no basis uh, for recounting the votes in Arizona. Uh, it's been counted and audited and so on by even Republicans. Uh, the same phenomenon took place in Georgia, where you have Georgia uh, Republican Secretary of State, uh, Lieutenant Governor, other officials who are Republican, who are saying Joe Biden won the election there. And so um, to some extent, what is going on in this country and Again, this gets back to what we were talking about at the onset of this conversation is do we are we going to describe these things in manby, pamby, wishy-washy ways or do we just say them or do we just to describe these things as they are? This is a form of brainwashing. Uh, people are being uh, deluded and led astray from the facts and the truth in a way that is very dangerous. And I think it's one of the reasons that we saw the insurrection happen on January 6th. For weeks and weeks after the November election, people were having it uh, hammered into their heads that uh, the election was stolen and so on, when that was absolutely not the case. And, you know, what do we do about that? That gets into a larger question, larger issue. I think a big part of it is our education system in this country is uh, in shambles. Um, we, from a grade school on up level, and I don't mean this, I don't mean this about James Madison University, but uh, from a grade school on up level, um, we are not getting the job done in educating our kids, preparing them for society, instilling in them a confidence in uh, institutions like a free press, institutions like um, free and fair elections, uh, institutions like care and respect for other human beings and civil rights, our fellow Americans and so on. And what has transpired as a result of that, as a result of that selfishness on the part of many people in our society. Um, well, we, now we have a whole generation of people who buy into this crap. And I cover these Trump rallies. And one of the most distressing things about these Trump rallies uh, is I see all of these young people, uh, very young ages, teenagers, sometimes they're in, in grade school and their parents bring them to these rallies. They're told that the enemy is uh, the press is the enemy of the people, that immigrants are bad for America and so on. And we wonder why the hell we're in this place that we are right now. So, you know, these are deep rooted um, fundamental general, generational problems in this country. And I'm afraid that it, we're going to, that the catalyst that is going to change all of that might be a very catastrophic thing that happens in this country. I hope that that's not the case, but as long as we have media diluting people to this extent, it raises the prospect that in 2022 or 2024, you will have one side of the political spectrum that won't be happy with what happened in the election and will seek to overturn the election results in a violent way. And, and that, I think, would will lead to uh, a tragedy, could lead to a tragedy that is far more serious than what we saw on January 6th. What you're describing, Jim, is just haunting. Uh, it's, it's, it, it's, it's hard to digest what happened on January 6th and even harder to digest the analysis of what that means for us. And so thank you for um, sharing those, that perspective in particular. Um, it, I, I want to talk about um, sort of moving forward. You, you covered um, this year's uh, Conservative Political Action Conference, or CPAC, in, in Orlando, which occurred about a month after the inauguration of Joe Biden. Um, Donald Trump Jr. actually referred to the event while you were there as TPAC. Um, and we famously saw images of a golden Donald Trump statue being wheeled in for people to take their picture with. Um, since that time, Congresswoman Liz Cheney uh, lost her leadership position within the Republican Party um, for voting in favor of Trump's impeachment following the events of January 6th. Um, and Lindsey Graham... Um, has said that the Republican Party cannot survive without Trump. Um, what do you make of President Trump's continued influence over the Republican Party as now a former president? And should the media cover the former president differently than they did while he was in the White House? Well, goodness. Um, talk about another question that we could spend an hour on. Uh, <laughs> You know, as for, I mean, Donald Trump Jr. doesn't say a whole lot that's true, but what he said at uh, CPAC, CPAC was true, that his father is still very much 
the head of the Republican Party, uh, the conservative movement in this country. I mean, if people were like, oh, look, 35 Republicans voted for the January 6th commission. Uh, as if everybody should get a participation trophy for that. 175 Republicans uh, voted against a January 6th commission. Uh, that's a far more serious uh, development, I think. Um, I mean, wouldn't you want to get to the bottom of why all of these guys with pipes and Confederate flags were trying to beat the crap out of everybody and hang the vice president on the front of the Capitol? I mean, I think that that's like a no brainer. And the fact that we couldn't get that done is is very disturbing. Um, but it goes to show you the influence that he has over the uh, party uh, right now. And I think that um, that is self-evident. Um, you know, uh, I, I think until um, I think an indictment comes down of Donald Trump or something along those lines, uh, which is possible if you look what's been happening in the news uh, last several days, um, you know, he, he is going to be firmly in, in, in charge of the party. Uh, you know, it's the, it's the craziest thing I've ever seen covering politics in, in my career. You know, here you have a disgraced one-term president, lost the House, lost the Senate, lost the White House, and somehow has this, lost his social media accounts. He can't even tweet, and yet still has this firm grip on the Republican Party. You know, Liz Cheney, you know, you mentioned Liz Cheney, you know, she, uh, I think took a very courageous stand. Um, you know, perhaps some of it is the bad blood that exists between the Trumps and the Bushes. I remember going to see Donald Trump at rallies where he would trash the Bush family and accuse the Cheneys of being warmongers and so on. Um, and that used to be one of the one of the wildest things I thought I would hear, uh, you know, at a Trump rally. One of the wildest things is that, he, you know, hear a Republican president, a Republican nominee to be president trashing the Bush family. That to, that to me was mind bending. But putting that to the side, um, it, it is uh, it is interesting to see somebody like a Liz Cheney with her profile rise up against Donald Trump. And perhaps she is positioning positioning herself to be an alternative uh, candidate to Donald Trump uh, and Trumpism heading into 2024. I, I do think that that is a very interesting development in the Republican Party. Um, but look what happened to her. She got tossed overboard. Uh, she's now been, uh, you know, pushed to the sidelines by her own party. Um, again, I, I think unless something, uh, you know, you know, very serious happens to Donald Trump in terms of a, you know, legal proceeding and so on, him being indicted, you know, that kind of thing. Um, even a Liz Cheney, as much courage as she showed, uh, you know, over the last few weeks, I don't I don't see her dislodging him as an alternative, uh, you know, as a candidate for the nomination of that party. Chris Christie has talked about it, uh, you know, that sort of thing. I think he's sort of auditioning to be kind of uh, Trump light, um, you know, the same bluster, maybe not the same threat to American democracy, you know, kind of thing. And so we're just going to have to see how it all plays out. But I, I think at this point, um, you know, yeah, no question about it. He's in charge of the party. Uh, in terms of how we cover him, how we cover Trump as an ex-president is it's, you know, you know, typically ex-presidents, they, they write a book, they go give speeches for $500,000 in front of Goldman Sachs or, you know, out in Oman or something like that. They get two million for a speech. You know, I mean, my Set goodness, I wish I could <laughs> sign up for that. Exactly. Um, Donald Trump would rather go play golf and scare the hell out of Republicans uh, so I, I suppose we're going to have to cover that. You mentioned that President Trump, um, you know, can, you know, continues to be a, a main figure, even though his Twitter account was taken away. Um, of course, he was um, deplatformed from another from a number of social media accounts. Um, and so, you know, I'm I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about what the responsibilities of digital and social what the responsibilities of digital and social media are with regards to. Um, deplatforming, you know, not just the president, but but when we see other instances of hate speech and violent extremism, um, and and then how do we balance, you know, these questions yeah. with freedom of speech and and civil liberties? It's a great question. I had um, a gentleman from the face, Facebook Oversight Board on a couple of weeks ago, and 
I tried to ask him this question, you know, would you be responsible if Donald Trump were to go out there and incite yeah. another insurrection? He would not answer the question. He sounded more like Facebook public relations than the Facebook oversight board. I thought it was very telling. Um, and so, you know, what do we do about this? Uh, social media companies have made a lot of money off of Donald Trump uh, in, in the way that Fox News has made a lot of money off of Donald Trump. Um, if you make people so crazy that they want to overthrow the government, there's a lot of money in that, sadly. Um, it's a sad state of affairs when you have to say something like that. But my God, I think it's true. Um, you know, I, I do think um, and one of the more fascinating things that I, I, I witnessed covering Trump was, you know, the, the way he was deplatformed at the very end of his presidency as if this was some sort of courageous act on the part of these social media companies. You know, they waited until the very end to say, OK, well, you know, maybe now he's gone too far. We better take away his uh, his social media accounts. You know, he was spewing this. He had been spewing this same nonsense, lies, BS, uh, hateful, violent rhetoric for four or five years. Um, you know, I describe him as a, a, a dictator in exile uh, down in Mar-a-Lago because that's how he behaved uh, at the very end of his presidency. He ended up ended up, ended his presidency uh, acting like um, an autocrat who was being ousted. Um, and, uh, you know, that it's just sort of a, a crazy concept to wrap your head around. But in many ways, you know, he was trying to overthrow the government. Remember, he was calling election officials in Michigan and Pennsylvania and Arizona. There was that infamous video of Doug Ducey in front of this table, the governor of Arizona, and his phone is ringing. And it's I think it's playing Hail to the Chief or something like that. And it was Donald Trump probably calling again, uh, calling him again to try to overturn the election results. He was strong arming his own vice president. People, you know, lose sight of all of these things. Uh, his own vice, he was you know, twisting the arm of his own vice president to go down to the Capitol and overturn the election results. The president of the United States of America. You can't make this stuff up. And so, you know, how do you let somebody like that back on social media? Twitter has told me I've asked the uh, PR people at Twitter. They say that their suspension is permanent of Donald Trump, that he is not getting back on Twitter. I think that's pretty profound. That's pretty significant. Facebook, it does look to be a, an open question. It does seem to be a question mark at this point. And remember, Facebook not only controls Facebook, controls Instagram. And so he could be replatformed, if that's the way of describing it, on those two places. I mean, that potentially would be enough to get him back in the ball game in terms of influencing the Republican Party, getting his message out there uh, you know, heading into the 2024 election. We'll see. A lot of people say, you know what, he would much rather play golf, uh, crash weddings, uh, that sort of thing down at Mar-a-Lago. Uh, he's sort of like the Walmart greeter of Mar-a-Lago. Mar people come in, they shake his hand. I, I think I described it as the hall of the disgraced presidencies, you know, at, like at Disney World and so on. Um, that is how he's behaving right now. Is it in him? Does he want to work hard enough to be president again? I'm not convinced of that. A lot of other people are not convinced of that. But what do we know about Donald Trump? Revenge is a big motivating factor for him. Why did he? One of the reasons why he ran for president, Barack Obama made fun of him at the White House Correspondents' Dinner in 2011. So, you know, maybe Joe Biden should not make fun of Donald Trump between now and 2024. Maybe that might be some free political advice for the current president. But, um, but I, you know, I, I, my view of Trump. Uh, is don't count him out. Don't don't write him off because um, he he thrives on that uh, on that more almost as much as anything else. We've been joined by Jim Acosta from CNN, alum of JMU, and author of the book "The Enemy of the People: A Dangerous Time to Tell the Truth." In America, which I feel like is a theme that we have been able to address in this conversation. Uh, at Democracy Matters, we do ask a final question of all of our guests, and I would like to present it to you. Um, Jim, what would you do to strengthen our democracy? Wow. Um, to me, you know, that is, um, that's the critical question of our time right now, because I do think that our way of life in this country is somewhat in peril. Um, this uh, idea that, you know, we can elect our leaders and those elections and those results will be respected. 
that has now been called into question. You know, I was telling a colleague of mine, remember those days when you would see a fist fight break out in a parliament uh, in Timbuktu on the other side of the world? Uh, no offense to anybody from Timbuktu, I'm just throwing out a name. Um, and we would laugh and snicker and say, oh, look at those people, they, they don't have their act together. Uh, look at that country, my goodness, uh, they, they're, they're just not quite a democracy yet, are they? And, you know, juxtapose that with what happened on January 6th. Uh, now the rest of the world is looking at the United States of America and saying, uh, maybe America's days are numbered. Uh, maybe they just don't have it anymore. Maybe they can't hack it anymore as the leader of the free world. Those are the discussions that are taking place, I guarantee you, in multiple uh, capitals, world capitals around the globe. You know, it's not so much what uh, friendly world capitals uh, think in terms of America and whether or not it's on decline. It's, it's what's happening in places like Moscow and Beijing because they're making bets right now that we can't hack it anymore as a democracy. And I do think uh, just if there's something that all uh, people of all political stripes can agree on, we have to um, revitalize uh, our educational uh, and information systems in this country. Um, we have to have kids coming out of high school, coming out of college with a healthy respect for the institutions that made this country great, uh, like the free press, uh, like a respect for free and fair elections, like a healthy respect for your fellow human being. Those types of things are, are waning and are in decline, I think, in, in this country at this point because of the tribalism and so on. And I, and, and beyond what's happening in our educational system, I think our information systems are um, a bit uh, cockeyed right now. You can't just have people getting their news from outlets um, that they uh, align with politically. Um, we have to figure out a way, um, you know, perhaps it's strengthening public broadcasting, perhaps it's strengthening public broadcasting in a way that it can compete uh, with uh, the broadcast uh, commercial networks uh, with the, um, you know, news outlets that are for profit, profit driven and so on. Maybe that will help um, you know, uh, strengthen, you know, the backbones of, of our for-profit uh, news outlets to cover the news that needs to be covered in this country rather than just sort of chasing the flash and the trash and the stuff that makes money. Um, you know, that to me, I think, could help revolutionize things in this country. Local news, uh, your local television news stations, they need to be doing a much better job covering the news. Local newspapers can't be falling apart and laying off people in droves. Um, we've got to figure, maybe there's a way for uh, Bezos and Elon Musk, you know, instead of just putting rockets on the moon and Mars, you know, can they, you know, uh, find some change under the couch uh, to help uh, prop up uh, newspapers and news stations across the country? I mean, Warren Buffett, where are you? I mean, Bill Gates, you know, uh, help us out here. I mean, there needs to be a, a better way of delivering news and information in this country than what we have right now, or otherwise we're in big, big trouble because it seems to me right now there is at least one political party that would like to see the news covered in a way that they cover the news in Russia and China, which is just sort of state media control uh, of the information that you receive. Uh, you know, imagine a world we would be living in right now if, you know, the only, if the Walter Cronkite of the United States were Tucker Carlson and all of the information you got every night was from somebody like that. My God, we're going to be, we would be going to hell in a handbasket in a hurry. Um, and so we've got it. There's, there are things we can figure out, um, I think, to make sure our democracy lasts until the 22nd century. Um, and I think it starts with educating our kids and making sure people are getting much better information than they are right now, because uh, half the country, I think, is being, you know, led down the Alice in Wonderland rabbit hole in a way that's potentially deeply destructive for our democracy.